Well, hey, everybody. In our last two chapters, I covered 2,000 years of church history in which I tried to show this trajectory of history that brought us here to a place of faith and quarantine, how the church can match the needs, how Anglican worshiping churches, churches with sacraments can sort of match the needs of the world in this strange distancing time. Today, I want to talk about St. Luke's tools or tools in our toolbox because we have a unique history within that history that I think has left us really well positioned to be a good church in this time of quarantine. So I'll just start from the beginning of St. Luke's. We're not an old church. Uh, We're not as old as many. Um, Our church was started on Easter Sunday in 1949. Our oldest uh, founding member is 99 years old. Uh, The rest of our founders are pretty much children of those parents, but uh, our oldest founding member is one of those young one of those young parents at the time. It was built by young people. Uh, the village of Crestline is a post-war community, pretty much a part of the post-war boom. And these young families uh, wanted to start a church that was close to home, and so it's always been something that uh, appreciated children, and it's nimble. A lot of things were homemade. I like to say that a, that a church's starting points have everything to do uh, with where you end up, and so so that's that's the, the story of St. Luke's. We've always uh, tried new things really well. We're pretty laid back. We like children. That's, that's our starting point. Now, at the time of St. Luke's founding, the Episcopal Church had within it two distinct camps. And because this is gone by the wayside, it takes it's probably time well spent to, uh, to take some time to explain the church that was before the 1979 Book of Common Prayer. Uh, there was a phrase we used to use in the old days. We called the church either high church or low church. And sometimes you'll, ha- you'll hear that thrown around where we think that high church means fancy, but that's not really what that means. There were high Episcopal churches and low Episcopal churches. And so in those days, the days of the origins of St. Luke's, high churches meant um, ornamental, uh, ritual, um, a Catholic style of worship that was centered around uh, the Holy Eucharist, uh, it was very much an attention to the to the church year, and it was very hierarchical in its and clerical in its outlook toward the priest. Uh, priests at that time, of course, were all men, but they were, would be called father in a high church. Low church is more a product of the Enlightenment. It probably has the longer history of the two styles of church in our in in the United States. Uh, it it's more interior, it's less adorned, and it's more Protestant. Now, low does not mean less formal, and it doesn't mean tacky. I I think people avoided that word low uh, because they they thought it meant less than, uh, but but it does not mean that. High does not mean fancy, and low does not mean uh, tacky. It just simply meant uh, more Protestant in its outlook. Most Southern churches were low churches in those days, including St. Luke's. Lee Graham, who was the building rector, uh, was the product of a low church seminary. Lee Graham came after three years. They had a, had some fits and starts with, with leadership, and so St. Luke's was pretty much laying lead for the first three years of its existence, which also is kind of a low church idea, but Lee Graham was the was a graduate of Virginia Seminary, which was founded in 1823, uh, VTS. It's in Alexandria, Virginia. And Francis Scott Key was on the board of that seminary. It's a venerable institution, and it's also where I went to school, uh, which I'll say something about that in a minute. 
but I can get into the mind of Lee Graham upon his arrival in Birmingham from Florida uh, to be the rector of St. Luke's because my professors were the students of his professors. So in many ways, we have the same seminary uh, experience. Uh, VTS has now changed into into the way the, the church looks today, which is obliterating those high church, low church uh, distinctions. But in, in those days, and in, in for most of VTS's life, it understood itself as the Protestant seminary of the Episcopal Church. The general seminary in New York City uh, would, would understand itself as the high church seminary of the Episcopal Church. And so those, those, those distinctions were really, really clear. And at uh, my seminary in those days, uh, with my professors who were the students of Lee Graham's professors, uh, the emphasis was on entrepreneurship. However, we had a word back then that we don't use anymore. I'm, again, I'm talking about a bygone era that birthed St. Luke's. We called it evangelical. Now, the evangelical tag sort of gotten taken away from us in the, the latter part of the, the turn of the last century, the latter part of the 1990s into the 2000s when, uh, when evangelicals uh, from the religious right sort of co-opted that word and made it into something that it was never intended to be. But rather, Virginia Seminary was always understood to be the evangelical Protestant uh, seminary of the Episcopal Church, which simply means uh, that we were supposed to be builders. Virginia Seminary was created to crank out builders uh, of Christian churches. We, its, its specialty was to crank out a rector who could grow a church. And I'll give you a couple of examples of, of how the style of Virginia Seminary. Uh, right before graduation, every year, right before the commencement weekend, they would have a service for the whole seminary community, and they called it the missionary service. And they would invite someone who was a foreign missionary from a far-off place like the Episcopal Church in Japan or somewhere in Indonesia or perhaps Namibia. Uh, they would invite them to come and try to convince, and the armed forces even, try to convince us students to take a missionary post and to grow uh, the world for Jesus. That, that was the purpose of the um, of, of Virginia Seminary, and and so so that that's just one one example of that entrepreneurial spirit. Another one is, is a personal story. When I was uh, studying something called clinical pastoral education, which is uh, uh, something that everyone has to do in between their first and second years, you're basically a hospital intern, and you go through a rigorous sort of period of learning how to pray and listen and visit hospital rooms. And, and, it, and it's supposed to make you have more empathy and just a better skilled person with, with those, that important part of my job. Anyway, all my buddies were all getting to wear clerical collars. They came from dioceses all over the country, and they had written and gotten permission from their bishops to dress like priests because they were going to be hospital chaplains and walking around. And I think those rules have been relaxed a, a lot uh, in, in recent decades. I mean, gosh, every denomination now uh, wears a clerical collar, or they can. I mean, Methodists and Presbyterians and, and even community church people uh, wear, wear clerical collars and nobody thinks a thing. But back in, back in my day, I guess I'm revealing my age, in that high church, low church day, um, it, was, it was reserved for the ordained only, especially in the Diocese of Alabama. And I asked my bishop if I could wear a collar, and he said no. Well, I was just all undone because all my buddies were going to get to wear a black shirt and white collar, and, and I was left out, and I was supposed to walk around looking like a looking like a civilian, and uh, and I was in a snit about it until one of my professors said to me, "Boy, why do you want to wear that collar? What's, what does that collar do for you? Why are you trying to hide behind it? And and also, why are you carrying around a prayer book reading prayers to people? Why don't you just go in and be a good guy and listen to people and pray with them? 
Listen to them and pray. And why don't you read scripture to them, not the prayer book? What are you hiding behind? And that was the attitude of Virginia Seminary uh, in, in those days, the attitude of Virginia Seminary in Lee Graham's day. Lee was a builder. So what Lee did is he knocked on doors. He went around this, this community of Crestline, this post-war, this post-war entity, and he knocked on doors. And I had one 90-year-old member tell me before he died that in those days he would, he would come to see you in your front yard and ask you where you went to church. And if you didn't answer quite fast enough, you were suddenly a member of St. Luke's, and you might even have been on the vestry. So uh, Lee Graham literally built St. Luke's one family at a time. He built a church. In 10 years, St. Luke's was the largest church in the Diocese of Alabama from nothing. Well, that's not the only story about St. Luke's, but I will say that, that that's a bigger part of who we are than what we realize. We are a hardworking, entrepreneurial, since we don't have the word evangelical anymore, entrepreneurial church uh, that likes to spread the kingdom in creative ways. Before our quarantine, we were just now finding our stride in the kitchen with gourmet food from Jimmy Tracy, and the parish was enjoying the fellowship and the camaraderie uh, with that food, and suddenly that's been taken away. But I do want you to know that at the time of this podcast, we are applying for a health department rating for our kitchen, and this morning I even got a food handler's license. So we are planning to, when we're able to roll into uh, cooking again, uh, creating some touches uh, through cooking, and I'll probably say some more about that in a second. This is exactly the kind of stuff we're doing. We're a church that thinks on its feet and can reinvent itself when circumstances require. But even our building has a story. Okay, Not only was Lee Graham a builder of families, our building uh, is a story, and our architecture is actually born of compromise. So what happens is that St. Luke's grows in 10 years, and it has 1,000 members, which in those days was just astounding. It grew like a little mushroom. And they were going to need to build a, a, a structure large enough to hold this large and growing congregation. So Lee Graham, went. they used all local talent in those days, and he went to an architect who lived in Crestline who went to St. Luke's named Nelson Smith. And Nelson Smith had been, had been educated by Northern European uh, architects, and he was very talented, very avant-garde, uh, very internationally inspired, and very well-respected architect. And so he came up with a drawing uh, that did two things. First of all, it used brick and aggregate and concrete and stuff like that because they didn't want to hand down a lot of debt uh, to future generations. There's another thing about St. Luke's. As a building entrepreneurial church, we've always run lean. Uh, our church doesn't have any heavy endowments. We never wanted them. We wanted to eat what we kill when it comes to raising money. Uh, for those of you who are hearing this podcast, I'm proud to tell you about our church that before we make a budget, we give 10% of our budget to local outreach before we even put pen to paper. 10%. So currently, that's $310,000. Then we take another three hundred and ten, we match it, and we give it to our diocese. Most churches would call their diocesan giving their outreach giving, but we don't. We give three ten to local outreach, three ten to our parent company, if you will, and then we start to make a budget. So this church has always been heroic in its giving and its building, and we run clean and lean, and we needed a building that would allow us to do that. What I'm trying to say is that Gothic Revival buildings are lovely. I'm, I'm a fool for church architecture, uh, but I do have friends who serve churches that um, uh, if if they don't have an endowment to cover their stained glass windows, they're toast, right? One one stained glass window uh, leaks and needs relighting, and suddenly you're spending hundreds and th- hundreds of thousands of dollars. We just don't have a building that costs that much. 
So they didn't want to they didn't want to hand down debt. So that was the first thing. Use homely materials, but they wanted to use something daring and big and and inspiring uh, for this for this brand new congregation. So this is in the late fifties, and I'm I'm going to make a educated guess and say it was 1958 because I saw the picture a long time ago. Lee Graham drew a, drew a building, and he made a model back in those days. You would have a little model of the building. And they all met at Canterbury United Methodist Church because they were, they were meeting in the little red church that's a feature of the village of Crestline right now that they had purchased from the Methodist uh, seven or eight years before. Not big enough, but they met at Canterbury United Methodist, which is a recently completed building, large church, in the, in the community of Mount Brook. And Mr. Smith unveiled a box that was just very daring and mid-century modern. And frankly, I've seen it, and it was pretty ugly. It looked like an Ikea, a cross between an Ikea and a spider. It had these, it had these buttresses that came out outside of it, like legs. It was, it was pretty bizarre. I think we would be pretty unhappy with it, quite frankly, today. And I will tell you, I think, I think our St. Luke's church today is one of the most arresting and lovely uh, build, church buildings in Birmingham. But, but let me tell you how we got there. Half the congregation who saw it that day, the original St. Luke's drawing and model, half loved it, half hated it. Uh, the half that loved it were, were, were cool, you know, edgy, mid-century modern people with fins on their cars and, and, and looking at the future in hope. The half that hated it wanted a Virginia colonial parish. And so Lee Graham went to Nelson, whose heart was broken, quite frankly, and said, I want you to go back and, and go to the drawing board and, and see if you can't compromise compromise. So what we have, and, and this is another, if I could say that St. Luke's is an entrepreneurial church, I would also say that one of our strengths is we're a compromising church. He went back to the drawing board and he drew Bruton Parish. So you could look up Bruton Parish. It's a colonial, he drew a colonial Virginia parish through mid-century modern eyes. It's fascinating, really. If you look at it, it has old bones and it has new bones. It's sleek and 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 cool uh, in that madman kind of way, uh, but it's also very old, so that weddings are lovely with a long center aisle and a transept shape, and it is just the perfect balance. And I've had one local architect tell me that what he really appreciates about St. Luke's is, it, that is it is a total original work of art. It's not a copy of anything. Gothic revival churches are so lovely, but they're, but they're copies of other Gothic revival churches. There might be a church in England or a church in the Northeast uh, that it's patterned after. Our church is patterned after nothing. It is it's a piece of art that is not found anywhere else, and it was born of the compromise of this church. It's kind of a neat thing to say. All right, so here are the building blocks of my argument so far. One, we were built in an era of the low church. Two, we're a church that's built uh, uh, on, with an entrepreneurial spirit. Three, we're a church that's always known compromise. In 1979, with the arrival of what we still call the New Prayer Book, because we're Episcopalian and we'll call it the New Prayer Book until we come up with another prayer book, um, the Book of Common Prayer obliterated the distinctions between high church and low church. For starters, in the low church, uh, the Eucharist was not the uh, primary service on a Sunday morning, and this was common across the South. Um, usually you had morning prayer three Sundays a month, and you had Eucharist one Sunday a month. Now, the rubrics, and the word rubric means rule because it comes from the Latin word red because uh, they were rubrics were printed in red, but the rubrics of the church from the very beginning, Thomas Cramner's vision for, for the Church of England, which would later become our church, would be that Eucharist would be the worship every Sunday. 
Uh, but, but the way that the low churches got away with that loophole is that they would have communion, holy communion is what they called it back then, holy communion at 8 o'clock or 7.30. And then the 10.30 service, the primary worship service, will be morning prayer. This is why when you visit Episcopal churches across the South, uh, and, and including my little church in Decatur before I came down here, you have an 8 o'clock service and a 10.30 service. And you, you can get everybody in one service, but that's why you always have an early service. It's from that old day when you had to keep the rules and have communion. So you had it first thing in the morning for the, for the handful of people who wanted it, and then everybody else came uh, for morning prayer uh, back in those days. Why am I telling you all this? Well, here we are in the quarantine, and we are Anglican worshiping Christians without sacraments. The thing that has defined us, at least since the 1979 Book of Common Prayer, which is Sunday communion, and I would say that at St. Luke's, not only were we having Sunday communion, but we had a lot of people who were relying on Wednesday communion, and that's Wednesday morning before the Bible study, noon healing Eucharist, uh, 6.30 contemplative Eucharist on Wednesday night, and I had some church members who were coming to all three. And I, and I know the old rules were you weren't supposed to take it but one time a Sunday, but we got rid of that too. And at St. Luke's, you had people who were coming and having communion at 1030 in the nave and then coming back at 5 and having communion again. And we had lay pastoral visitors, including your clergy, who were taking little boxes of communion everywhere we went so that more often than not, a visit in the hospital would also have communion attached. Communion, communion, communion. We went from a low church to a modern church where the sacrament was front and center. And hey, I think that's an awesome thing. It's just great, except the, except the quarantine has presented a new challenge. I've read somewhere that it's probably not helpful to call this a war against a virus because this is just nature. This is, this is just biology, and it's, and it's a little physics, and it's, a little, right, it's, and it's just a little bit of uh, human physiology. Uh, rather, it, rather than a war, this is an adaptation. The quarantine, as opposed to a war, is an adaptation. And so suddenly, this Eucharistic church that we have created has been taken away from us in, in many ways. First of all, there are the laws that require us to quarantine the church. And it's just about to kill me and, and, and most of St. Luke's that they can't get into the building. I mean, it's just, it's, just, it's just killing us. But the second thing it's done is it's taken away the sacrament. I haven't had anybody ask me for it. A long time. Last week, I talked to some friends, and they said, "Well, when we come back, I'm not sure I want it." Even the week before the the final decision for a complete quarantine, people were debating whether they wanted to dip or whether they wanted to sip out of the common cup or whether they wanted to have the wine at all. So people are rethinking whether they even want it anymore in this time when we're not certain that we can keep people safe. But that's only the beginning. The fact of the matter is, is I think that, that something is being revealed to us not too dissimilar to what happened to me in my clinical pastoral education course. We've had the sacraments taken away from us, and now what we can, we can do is we can look at ourselves honestly, and what have we got? If we're Anglicans without the sacraments, what have we got? Well, we've got family. We've got heart. We've got kindness. And and we have a we have a new a new way to look at um, a, a new way to look at being church for each other. Perhaps I could even say that we've discovered new sacraments since the bread and the wine have been taken from us. 
at least two that I can think of. First of all, videography is, is, is sacramental in a way. It's, it's binding us together. We're reaching thousands and thousands of people, uh, not only with uh, midday uh, prayer uh, every day that we have at noon on Facebook Live, but also our services on Sunday are reaching astounding numbers of people, and they're reaching them internationally. So that's been something that wouldn't wouldn't have been available to us uh, had we had we not been given the um, hmm, the challenge of the quarantine. And then the other is food. Now I mentioned this a minute ago that right before the quarantine, our own chef Jimmy had been creating a lot of buzz around around fresh, uh, delicious gourmet food, fresh food, farm to table food, fresh ingredients. Uh, we were rediscovering the joy of of a, of a warm uh, smelling kitchen and the hospitality that comes with that. Eventually, there will be a, a, a rollout, if you will, uh, a phased rollout for businesses and restaurants. Churchill's will be the last thing. A big church like St. Luke's will be absolutely the last thing to open up. But I do believe that before we're able to open and to return to worship as a family, we'll be able to eat together. And eating will become a sacrament. And I had this experience just the other day. I, I cooked hamburgers for our St. Lucas who are living in our local nursing homes. You can actually take them food uh, to the desk and they'll get it to people. I put my name on it. So this is a hamburger from Rich's Grill. And honestly, it was as, it was as, as poignant and as holy as a box of communion. I realized that, that to be an Anglican worshiping Christian, it's how you think and how you love, not necessarily exactly what you do. Hamburgers with mustard and ketchup and a pickle were just as holy as port wine and a wafer of bread. Same prayer, same heart, same Jesus. I think what's happening here is as we adapt together as a church like St. Luke's, as long as it remains entrepreneurial and hardworking and attentive to the right things, as long as it continues to be a building church like Mr. Graham gave us and a compromising church like they all discovered they could do together, then we can be the family of Christ together in this quarantine. We can find new tools for our toolbox. Thanks, friends.